I'm not going down just because of something some stupid adults are doing. Mobile suits. Monday, Monday. Camille's a man's name, and I'm a man! No carrots, please. Mobile suits? As you may or may not have noticed, we here at Fanholes enjoy talking about the Japanese anime franchise Gundam a great deal, so we decided it would be fun if we put together this sideshow series just exclusively dealing with Mobile Suit Gundam. And the first piece we decided to talk about in our inaugural episode, as we've talked about various Gundam series, over the years on fan holes, we decided that we were going to be talking about Mobile Suit Gundam F91. Now, this was a theatrical motion picture that was released in Japan around the year 1991. In North America, we didn't actually receive a dubbed version of it until 2004. And the reason why we here at Fanholes decided to start with Mobile Suit Gundam F91 as opposed to, like, any of the other different series is because, honestly, we haven't talked about it yet. And many of the other Fanholes had not yet seen this film, so I was probably one of the only Fanholes who had seen it. And, you know, it, it is a feature film, so it's not as big a commitment as, say, a 50-episode series or even, you know, a 13-episode OVA. So that's kind of why we decided to start with Gundam F91. As far as myself, I think I first saw this film probably around the year 2000, 2001. And, of course, it was with some, you know, horrible asswipe fan sub or what have you, probably on, like, a DVD or a VHS tape. Of course... You know, later it was dubbed in 2004, so there's also that version that comes to us from Bandai Entertainment. Gundam F91, basically, I think I'm just going to read a brief synopsis from the Anna America special, which it was my guide and Bible and pretty much, you know, lord and master when it came to exploring new things in the Gundam universe. It was a little special that came out in the year 2000. So here it is, Mobile Suit Gundam F91. Thirty years of peace have followed Shar's rebellion. With the population growing, the Earth Federation once again begins building new space colonies. 
an upstart private army seizes control of the newly created colonies, seeking to create an ideal society founded on the principles of an aristocratic merit. A handful of refugees join forces with the routed Federation garrison to fight their way to safety, while one of their number is drawn into the ranks of the enemy to become a figurehead leader in their army. And then this is a little bit of commentary they have here that's kind of opinionated, but I guess we'll get into our own opinions here following this reading. Uh, Gundam F-91 was the first of several attempts to relaunch the Gundam saga without the baggage of the one-year war continuity. However, while it features a few novel ideas, for the most part it plays out as a pale imitation of the original series. The first few minutes, a civilian's eye view of a full-scale mobile suit invasion make for a powerful and imaginative sequence that hints at what it could have been. And Tamino's later V Gundam echoes some of the more interesting ideas suggested by Gundam F-91. Gundam F-91 was something of a reunion of the original team with director Yoshiyuki Tomino, character designer Yoshikazu Yashuhiko, and mecha designer Kunio Okawara, all reprising their roles from the first Gundam series. While many of Yashihiko's F-91 characters seem like knockoffs of the original cast, his design for the title Gundam, subsequently cleaned up by Okawara, is strikingly streamlined and modern. So that's basically their brief write-up on Gundam F-91. And so I guess, you know, me having watched this several times, I kind of have a, my own opinions on Gundam F-91, but I'm going to kind of open it up to the other fan holes who are here with me tonight. So why don't you guys all shout out and let everybody know who's here tonight. This is Derek, Derek WC. I'm going to be your host on Mobile Suit Mondays. And then with me here tonight are... Michael. This is Grimlock, and I am a char. This is Tony Chainclaw, and... Grab those kids! They won't shoot us if we have kids! Hang on, everyone! I'm backing up! They'll never attack us if we can use the children as living shields! Ah, yes, the hostages. Yeah, that, that, that's one of the human shields that were in the uh, opening sequence that we were just talking about in the description there. I think this series basically takes place, you know, Gundam... At least, you know, the original series takes place in the Universal Century timeline. So a lot of people may be familiar with a lot of the AUs or the alternate universe timelines. Like we know Mr. Tony Jackson is a big fan of G Gundam. I know a lot of people in the States first started watching Gundam with Gundam Wing, so they'd all be familiar with that alternate universe. But in this case, this is where Gundam originated, the Universal Century timeline. And so this takes place in the Universal Century UC-123. So it's about 44 years after the original Mobile Suit Gundam series. It's about 30 years after Char's counterattack. And if you remember us talking about Gundam Unicorn, it's about 27 years after that. So, you know, like it's talking about, there's a group called the Crossbone Vanguard, and they're attacking a frontier colony, Side 4, and they're basically trying to set up uh, an aristocracy. That's kind of their goal. And so they, they attack that colony in order to instigate that aristocracy. You know, I, I'm kind of curious what, what you guys, what your first impressions of it were and, and kind of what you think of the feature film. I mean, the, the only thing I can I can sort of preface it with is, for me, I, I think it's fair in 
whatever my criticisms and complaints are uh, or or praises, you know, because I think there's lots of good things about the series as well, is while it's a feature film, it, it was a feature film, but it was sort of retooled to be a feature film from sort of a a pilot TV series, you know, like I think the original intent was that it was going to be, you know, a full length anime and maybe have, you know, the standard, you know, 49, 52 episodes or what have you. But it ended up being sort of compressed into this feature length film that only got, you know, one release and wasn't a series of films or anything like that. You know, Mike, you, you watch a lot of Gundam. Like, do you have anything to open up with for Mobile Suit Mondays? Like your thoughts on Gundam F91. I will say this before Mike talks. His avatar is scaring the fuck out of me. <laughs> Iron Mask, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say I liked it. I mean, well, I guess I liked it, but I definitely saw the hints that, like, you know, it was supposed to be a series. Because, like, there'd be, like, you know, all these characters introduced and shoved in, and then, like, you know, they want to, like... Like, what's her name? Anna Marie. Like, she's like, she's like, oh, I'm jealous of that girl. Okay. And then the next time you see her, she switched sides. <laughs> and then, like, five yeah. minutes later, she dies. <laughs> like, so I was yeah. like, wait, what? <laughs> I, I thought maybe, like, I, like, there was, like, a, you know, scene missing. I was like, wait a minute. Like, did I, like, nod off? Like, did the video jump? Like, did, did I miss something here? Like, me, Grimlock, have questions. Like, I was like, wait a minute, no, like, she's, they just kind of jumped to that. Like, they do that several times, and it's kind of it's kind of jarring. Yeah. It or, seems like like it's it's very much like a, a George Perez drawing, but in terms of anime, you know, like, there's so much stuff going on. For me, I know I would always watch this multiple times, or even go back and, you know, on even on repeat viewings. And if you, it, it just seems like if you're not, intensely paying attention to every little detail that's thrown in there, then you will kind of miss things or, you know, like there a lot of things like kind of what you're saying is like there, there's certain things where I think you're supposed to assume certain things happen, but you don't always directly see them. Like, like there's a, there's a scene where Cecily's getting some flowers but I don't think they ever actually show her get the flowers. It's like they cut to so many things, and by the yeah, end of the scene... Yeah, I was scene, like, where did she get she, those from? She yeah. received the flowers. And it's like, well, the the thing is, the the person who, who gave her the flowers was Zabine. Yeah, and and he brought those flowers for her. Like, the, the, that's the whole point. Like, like, if you miss that scene where Zabine brings Cecily the flowers, you don't get... Like, Anna Marie's right there. And Anna Marie's kind of like... <laughs> Hey, I love you, Zabine. Like, you're the shit. Like, I totally love you. And then Zabine's like, well, here's some flowers for Cecily. And then she's like, what the fuck? That fucking fish whore? Like, I hate you, you know? And, and, and none of this really, you know, they, they, they don't really show this, but it's like, that, that's, that's the inference is like, she's so fucking jealous, you know, because he's, he's not only tutoring her, but she's kind of in love with that guy. And so that's why the next time you see her, she's defected. She's gone to the other side because of that. And then the next time, you know, she basically is out to kill Cecily because she's like, oh, that bitch is in the mobile suit. She took my man and like she wants to fucking get some blood. So yeah, there's, there's lots of stuff like that where if you're not sort of, you know, you, you kind of, it's fun for me, at least with this, is to sit down and watch it and kind of hyper-analyze it and kind of go back and, and even just within a, the span of a few minutes, you know, 
watch a couple minutes over and over again until you're like totally like okay like I'm I'm rock solid on the politics and and you know organization of of how this scene plays out you know well one thing you you mentioned when you're giving the uh, description of the creators and stuff and the people who watched it they really do do a good job in the uh, first like you know twenty or so minutes. Yeah, that, that 20, 20 opening minutes is, is, is a great scene. Yeah, it's just so confusing because at first you think the Vanguard is just a bunch of complete assholes, but then you find out they don't want them to kill the citizens. They don't even want them to kill all the mobile suit pilots because they can get them to join their side. But at first you're like, oh, they're fucking dicks. And then also there's also the fact that, like, the people who are actually in the colony, they don't know what's going on. They're not actually just like, you know, like... As soon as they attack, they're not like, all right, arm the mobile suits and get the Gundam out. We're going to fight those bastards. They're like, what the fuck is going on? Which is how normal people would react, you know? Yeah, well, there's there's lots of chaos going on when the Crossbone Vanguard initially attacked the colony. I know I know. before we, we started the show, we were talking about, you know, how you reacted to some of the violence. And I know, you know, Tony already brought this up, but the whole idea of them using, well, it's not the Crossbone Vanguard. It's kind of interesting. The Federation, I guess, has been at peace for so long that everyone that that is working for the Federation, it seems like, are either, you know, Corrupted or cowards. overpaid, yeah, corrupted or cowards or just overpaid assholes. Like they have no skills, no training for this kind of stuff, and and they've kind of become complacent with with you know what what has been sold to them as peace. Whereas you know maybe for the last thirty years, the Crossbone Vanguard have been building up their army to to do this takeover. So you've got all these people there where you know you get these kids you know, just trying to, you know, survive and, you know, run for their lives, basically. And in the meantime, you get these Federation guys that are like, oh, let's use the kids as shields, which which I find kind of interesting because, like, I give, when, like, I guess, you know, I, I don't want to get too heavy into this, but this is some kind of heavy shit, especially in the opening with all the death and kind of random nature of the attacks and everything. But when I first saw this, like, it was, it was like, you know, pretty much right on the cusp or, or even like right after nine eleven. So I mean that was like fresh in my mind when I originally watched like this horribly fan subbed version of this film. So of course that was forefront in my mind. But then I think when when this actually premiered in Japan in nineteen ninety one, you're talking about like the idea of human shields, like, well you got guys like Saddam Hussein using people as human shields during the Gulf War or something like that. You know, there's 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 not a lot of historical comparisons other than, you know, Nazi Germany, Taliban, Saddam Hussein, Palestinians, like guys like or, that. Or I'm not sure if the time reference is right, but maybe even like a Tiananmen Square. But see, that's not that's like a protest, like yeah. like a, a, yeah, a human like, shield yeah. is somebody somebody using you know it's some usually a human shield is referred to as somebody that that's used as a shield against their will. It's not like the kids like Seabook, who is the main character, you know, in this story, and and all his group of friends like they don't want to be put in front of the Crossbone Vanguard's mobile suits, you know, as like yeah, you know cannon fodder. You know, whereas whereas the guy who was in Tiananmen Square was kind of, you know, 
he he was basically trying to stand up for what what he thought was right, True. you know. So so uh, you know it's like and and in this case, these all these people are just basically scrambling for their existence. Have you? Uh, I, I will I'll say I will say one thing though that like was really really nice is for this being 1991. Anybody who hasn't seen this, I I will admit I'm the the bad fan hold this week. I I got about about 70% through it because of time constraints, not because I didn't like it or didn't want to watch it. So I haven't seen all of it yet. Tony, Tony, you can't become part of the aristocracy, <laughs> and we will be using you as a human sheep. <laughs> you cannot become part of the uh, Cosmo. <laughs> Babylonia? Yeah, no, no Cosmo Babylonia for Tony. I swore to myself that I would not remove this mask until the day Cosmo Babylonia is founded. Forgive me. Cosmo Babylonia? What exactly is that? The thousand-year-old dream of the Rona family. A guarantee for the eternal survival of humanity. But one thing I will say, even for 1991, even though it was a lot of the people who worked on, like, Mobile Suit Gundam, oh my god, the, the animation is, is gorgeous, especially the mech designs and the mobile suit designs. That really pulled me into it. I mean, there's been a lot of really pretty Gundam shows and even movies, you know, I mean, I'm not sitting there saying, like, it's better than any of those, but at the same time, I even mentioned it to the guys before we started the show, it kind of reminds me of Stardust Memories, because they had a lot of very intricate designs, but also they were, like, as Derek said, they were streamlined, but very, it's it's hard to, like, put it into words, it's, it's very technical, and you get the idea these are really advanced machines, but there's also this streamlined effect where... You see all the panels, and you see how they move, and it's just it very, very well done as far as the animation. And I, I really enjoyed like seeing the battle, even if it was graphic and a little bit jarring, if only because I was like, wow, this is this is this is a very high end quality. It, let me put it this way: it's like watching Mobile Suit Gundam and watching this is like watching Transformers like season one, and then watching Transformers the movie. <laughs> You know. Well, but that that's the thing. It is it is a theatrical quality. I mean that that's the one benefit, whether or not you sort of get the complete story of F ninety one. You know, I know it was originally developed as a TV series, but because they went the feature length route, I mean you do definitely get the benefits of the feature length animation with it. So yeah, everything looks really sleek and nice and and film quality, you know, as far as that goes. The one thing I will say, though, from a technical standpoint, is I hadn't watched my Bandai DVD in many, many years. Like, it came out in 2004, so that's when Americans were were first exposed, you know, technically. I mean, unless you were watching, you know, crazy... DVZ asswipe fan subs like me because you're crazy about Gundam or like Hong Kong English, you know, bootleg discs or whatever like I used to back in the day when I first got into Gundam. But the first time, you know, most Americans were exposed to it was in 2004. And when I popped in that DVD, I guess I was just assuming it was going to be anamorphic because this is a, you know, feature length theatrical release. So it's widescreen. But what's funny is it's it's like a pan and scan within a letterbox. 
So yeah. it's not anamorphic. So it kind of sucks because I had forgotten about that. And so I pop it in and I got my HD TV and it's got a really nice 5.1 surround sound. So the sound's really great. But then when I popped it in, I'm like, what? Oh man, it's not anamorphic. So I was all sad. So I, I know there's like some Blu-ray releases in Japan, but I'm sure those are not dubbed. So I was, I was a little let down that I had to sort of watch it like, kind of like, uh, you know, a box within a box on my TV type thing. But yeah. Um, but yeah, so. But, uh, Wait, so I was gonna say like Mike or Justin. I was gonna say since I'm not the more knowledgeable Gundam fan, and I mean, and me and Derek have been kind of bullshitting for a few minutes. The 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 violence and the gore we had just mentioned took me aback, and I'm not even the biggest Gundam fan. Like, what did you two guys think about it? Like being much more longtime fans of the series. I thought that whole like opening 20 minute sequence was very interesting. It's kind of like you know, once the once the attack happens, like they're all like trying to get to this you know ship that's supposed to be there and escape and what i liked was you know they they're kind of running through town they're like helping people and everything and then they're kind of like yeah we're gonna fight our way there and whatever and they get on top of that uh, the guy who runs the museum they get on top of his like transforming tank whatever i'm like okay they're gonna be like the normal like these are our main characters so they can do just about anything and they've got (laughs) i know right (laughs) and then that that um, totally like threw me for a loop (laughs) yeah like it you know sea books friend Arthur like he he gets smacked pretty hard into a building and like his neck is broken and Seabook's like you know come on Arthur like come on wake up and he's like trying to wake him up and then it once they finally get to that you know space boat or whatever and they're they're kind of in the debris field where like there's a hole in the colony and all this debris is coming out but it's not just you know like usually in the series you'll you'll see like a tree or a car or something but like no it's like you get like all kinds of like shots of people and stuff coming out and like going back to that attack, like you see like several like little kids, like they're like they're dead, dead bodies. They're like they're you know kids' moms completely dead. I'm just like this is um this this is pretty intense. Hey Arthur, Arthur, you gotta get up, Arthur. Come on, man. What do you think you're doing, laying around like this, Arthur? Please stop messing around, Arthur. Come on, please snap out of it. You gotta snap out of it. We need more guys like you here. So you gotta come around and stop it. Let him rest in peace. He's gone. No, but it's... But it's Arthur. He can't die. <laughs> in in the timeline, like, they have timelines for, like, you, you know, the universal century and everything. And, and a, as this is treated as, you know, a historical event in that timeline, I, I forget what the figures are, but it's something like, you know, a hundred-something thousand people or you know, refugees and like 4,000 people died or, you know, like basically like in this attack. So it's not like a case of like, you know, when, when somebody, you know, it's not like me trying to get into an argument that one Ewok died during the battle of Endor. Like, no, like thousands of people died during this attack. And you, you definitely see the evidence of that on, on camera. I I was just curious. I was going to ask you guys, I don't know what which version of this you saw, whether you watched a subtitled version or a dubbed version, but I, I was just curious, like, this may go back to the age-old debate of what, you know, whatever version you saw first, you like the best, but, you know, I, I think maybe listeners would know that I'm a pretty big fan of, of English dubs of anime, and I'm always happy when they can, you know, make them very well done and, and you know, competently, but... 
I, I would say in the case of the scene you just described where Seabook's friend, Arthur, like, he gets killed. Like, I don't I don't know what it is. Like, I think the actor is very capable. Like, I think he's really good. But for some reason, the, the power of that scene, I feel like it was somehow lost. And I can't really... I, I, for me, I can't really put it into words why the Japanese version, to me, seemed more powerful. Like, and, it, and it's just two different interpretations of the same scene. But for some reason, some of the weight of that scene was lost on me. And I was just curious which version you guys saw, and and if you have any opinion on my sort of statement about that. I saw the I saw the English dub, and like. Yeah, I guess I, I have nothing to compare it to, but, like, I, I know what you mean, though. Like, you know, obviously, like, we always reference, like, the Bardock special for DBZ in that scene yeah, with Vegeta yeah. at the end. It's like it was, it was definitely one of those moments, like the Bardock special or, like, certain scenes in Cowboy Bebop where the original Japanese just, I, I don't know, I can't quantify <laughs> what it is, but it just that, you know, the way they delivered the line just blows it the fuck out of the water. And, and unfortunately, you know, as competent as maybe some of the voice actors are or, or are not, you know, it just, it just didn't, it didn't compare to me. Yeah. I, I saw the English dub myself just for our fan holes listeners. I completely and totally bought this and did not go to YouTube and look up F 91 full movie. <laughs> Hint. Um, <laughs> In case you do not want to see it for free, and, and um, or, or you know you don't want to be spoiled if you want to stop listening now and and, and go watch it yourself and make up your own mind and continuing listening to a Mobile Suit Mondays here at Fanhole. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I guess I'm the odd man out because I watched the sub version. Okay, and 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 so, uh, like Mike, do you have no basis of comparison? Maybe like you didn't see the the dub at all. No, I guess I guess I don't have any okay. comparison. Really. Okay, cool. No, that's interesting. Well, well, Justin, what what do you think about that death scene? Did that like did it hit you hard? I mean, I know you don't have a comparison, but like when you saw that, was it like, you know, really kind of like me and Mike are kind of like you know, yeah, it was, it was okay, you know, it was all right, but like, did it hit you hard? I don't think it like hit me hard. I thought it was just a very like intense like sequence, and it was very like a, you could feel it was intense like for the character at that moment. Like that was a key moment for that character, and like the Japanese actor. Like I thought he did a really good job in the character. He was like trying to get him to come away, and he was like, "Come on, see, look, we gotta get out of here." But uh, I think they just they held on to the scene because you see, you know, he's holding on to Arthur for like several. Uh, it, it feels like a long time, like it feels like a minute or two, but it's probably just like, you know, 15 or 20 seconds. I, like I, I think it's like that that one line, though, especially where he says, he says, but you're Arthur. Like, like I, I don't know how to explain <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, we like, don't know Arthur, but he's known him all his life, yeah. But but it doesn't, it doesn't, I don't know what it is. It just, it doesn't quite translate. Like when the American actor says it, he's kind of like, but you're Arthur, dude, you're Arthur. But when the Japanese guy says it, it's almost like this, like, dumbfounded like like it's like it hasn't even dawned on him that the guy's dead or like not that it's like it's dawned on him that he's died 
but he's, it's just like he's gonna have like first stage, die. He's like in that like, first stage of grief. He's not accepted it yet. Yeah, it's like it's like that that yeah that unacceptance of like, but you can't die because you're fucking Arthur, you know. And like I I don't it's know. Kinda it's kind of like so, he hasn't like realized like that he's like holding like a like inanimate object instead of a instead person of anymore. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, definitely. Like it, it just I don't know. To me, it was a big. You know, like 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 what Justin was saying, it's a it's a heavy you know turning point for that you know that lead character that you're introduced to. おい、おい、あんた、あんた、おい、何してるんだよ。こんなところで、おい、こら、冗談やってる時じゃないだろ。あんた、目を開けてくれ。お前みたいのがいないとみんなが困るだろ。やめなよ。It just just so that that maybe people can follow along and just give some setup. You know, the other main character I think that's that's worth bringing up. You know, along with you know, because C book has this big cast of, of friends and some of which who you know of course have you know, we just talked about that that perish during this. This assault, but then uh, you know one of them who does not perish is is Cecily Fairchild, and she's uh, a redheaded, attractive young lady. And at the beginning of of the movie, it's like they're at some kind of county fair, and you know Seabook is this engineering student, and he's kind of dragging her. Don't bet on me. To this beauty contest. Yeah, I thought, you know, I, I, I don't know who the American voice actress was, but like for some reason, like I, I felt like she was. Not quite. I don't know. Like, like she wasn't bad, but it just felt like she wasn't quite in her element. The moment, yeah. Like, so I was was gonna say, like, just in general, the character of Cecily. I think she probably suffered the most from this being changed from like a series to a movie. Because I I feel like she went through the the whole like characterization she would have gone through in like fifty episodes in two hours instead. Yeah. Where she's kind of like like oh I don't want to do this. Okay, now I've accepted I have to do this. No way, I'm changing my mind again. The reason I called you here is because until Cosmo Babylonia has been fully established, I would like you to stay here with us and act as our queen. You want me to be the queen? You see, dear, the masses always demand an idol of sorts for them to admire. Having lived and worked among them, you understand their lives and could be that idol. But that's completely out of the question. I could never agree to do something so outrageous. Hmm? Oh, no. I was so happy to see you, I got ahead of myself. Please forgive me, Vera. No, forgive me for thinking only of myself. (laughs) <laughs> just like what Justin said, like and Derek said about that, the other character who like just changed, you know, like you know, she's like, oh no, my friend may be dead. Oh no, what is going on? This huge change is happening in my life. I will not join you. I will not get. Okay, I'll walk into my brother's hand of his giant mech and I'll go with them. And you're like, what? What the hell? <laughs> Was it a huh? Well, I feel like she would have spent more time maybe with, like, you know, the cross, the crossbone, like, vanguard and maybe, like, been like, okay, well, maybe this is where I belong. And then, like, you know, if she re, re once she reunited with, like, Seabook, she'd be like, well, you know what? No, you know, I don't believe in this after all. But it was kind of like, yeah, it was too soon, basically. Yeah, I, I guess I'll, I'll jump in just for a second just because I, I will have so little to say later on. 
But, like, yeah, Cecily is actually, like, related to the Cosmo Babylon family, the the uh, family, ruling family who wants to, you know, start this revolution. And she, there, there's a long story arc with, well, not long, it's only two hours, but there's a story arc where she, you know, was with her mom and her surrogate father, not her real father, like, you know, was with her mom and he's actually loyal to the Cosmo Babylon now. And he gives her up to them so that she can rejoin them and be their queen and all this good stuff and, you know, be, be the rightful heir and stuff. So that's, like, kind of her story arc. And, and, and it, I mean, like, like you guys said, it's interesting. It's a really cool idea. It's a really cool, you know, theme. And, like I said, Derek and Justin have heard, like, have not heard, but, like, you know, saw the subtitles and heard, like, the actual Japanese actors. So they may have, like, a lot more appreciation for that actress how she portrayed it but you know you don't really get the depth of like what she's going through but it's really kind of a, a cool idea because she also cares about you know her friend who who's basically our Amaro uh, Amaro Ray you know he's, he's the, the good guy and yeah it, it, it's kind of a cool like moment when she gets taken in like the first you know 20 minutes because this isn't like a normal Gundam show where the good guy kicks ass in the first, like, 20 minutes. He gets his ass beat. <laughs> he doesn't do well. So, you know, that, that was kind of a cool moment where it's like everything is against, like, who we would think is our good guy. Yeah, the uh, the Rona family is the aristocracy that they're, they're that she's a part of and, and that is trying to, you know, set up this, you know, Cosmo Babylonia, you know, on behalf of the, the Crossbone Vanguard. And so what... I guess Tony was talking about is you've got Theo Fairchild, which is where she gets her sort of, I don't know, her, her colony name from her non aristocratic name from, because, you know, it turns out like she is a Rona. So they, they basically are like, Oh, well, you know, you are, you know, barrel Rona. And, and, you know, that's what your, your real name is, even though you went by Cecily Fairchild. And I, I think it's kind of interesting because I, I, I feel like there's a lot of cool ideas in Tomino Gundam. And sometimes they're, they're a little more obvious in other series, kind of like Seed. Like, because I, I, I see like Cecily is kind of a, an analog to, you know, like, what's your face from, a Lacus Klein, you know, like those kind of characters where, you know, eventually, you know, the, the way Seabook and, and Cecily pan out, you know, they, they do sort of become, you know, Kira and, and Lacus, you know, where they kind of go off together and, you know, have adventures and that kind of thing. I think, I think I like Seabook and Cecily a little better than Kira and Lacus, but, you know, like that's, that's just my personal preference, but, you know, I, I, I think, you know, in terms of the, the Rona family, you know, you've got the old grandfather who, you know, basically is, you know, welcoming her back into the family. You've got the mother who is basically, she, you know, kind of disappeared, not only from her daughter's life, but also from the life of, you know, the aristocracy, you know, and, and so the mother originally married, I guess, the main big bad in this series who we should talk about, who is scarily looking at Tony Jackson through Mike's avatar. <laughs> He's credited as both Iron Mask and Corozo. And, and, you know, Corozo was Cecily's, you know, biological father. Who I will, and who I will this, say did have a really good dub voice in the English version. Today, well over a hundred years into the universal century, Federation high officials pollute the earth once again, destroying humanity's one and only... 
Good. Do you think you can catch him? We can try. Do it then. We decided yes. to found Cosmo Babylonia. The Crossbone Vanguard are the advanced forces of that process. You who are abandoned to dwell here in this newly rebuilt colony must use all your abilities to forever protect the entire Earth sphere. It's interesting because they, they talk about how they, you know, they, they're in the commentary. They mention how the guy can't watch the guy's scenes without remembering how they had him like hold a cup to his mouth. Because I guess they, they had him do that as like some kind of echo effect for the mask or whatever. Like so like thing, I guess... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, like, they, they basically, the, one of the guys who worked on the English dub in the commentary, they're all talking together and everything, so. I kept, I kept thinking he was kept gonna, he was gonna say something like, you cannot defeat my psycho power, because it was M. Bison's voice from the Street Fighter animated movie, so. Nice. That's pretty cool. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I just kept thinking like a, it was like you cannot defeat my psycho power. Ryu can, you know. But no, uh, he, yeah. he, he, it was a pretty good voice. Yeah. Oh, by the way, but during all this going on, our heroes, quote unquote, managed to get into a lifeboat with with his dad, which is kind of nice. And no, his dad uh, doesn't get in there. Sorry. Uh, they meet up with asshole who looks kind of like his dad later on. Oh, yeah. See, that that's another thing I was going to bring up. And, and I think the answer to my question on Tony's behalf would be yes. But did you guys get, you know, Mr. Arno, who is Seabook's father, confused with Theo Fairchild, who is Cecily's father, because of how they look? They're both short guys with mustaches. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what the hell? Yeah, because like, well, yeah, when, when, it, like, it's kind of like, like they, they've got, and he was going to like shoot her. I was like, why is Seabook's dad trying to shoot Cecily? <laughs> yeah. See, and that's not. Yeah, it, it, it it's like they have Steve Rogers, Hank Pym, and Clint Barton syndrome. You know, <laughs> like they're all white dudes with blonde uh, no, hair. No, so, it's, like, it's okay because Clint Barton's always had brown hair. You know that, right? Right. right yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so so I was just curious. What about you, Justin? Like, I know you were watching the Japanese version. I know in the American version they talk about how they specifically tried to cast the voices completely different, even though the characters looked pretty similar. Yeah, I think I was confused there a couple of times too, especially like you know when Seabook's uh, dad like shows up in that truck. I'm like, wait, isn't that the other dude that like gave away Sicily, like why is he helping him with with the truck? I'm like, oh, it's his dad. Okay. Yeah, it's like a very very confusing thing, but yeah, they they eventually get saved by Federation forces, and there's a a, a nice commander who who is you know trying her best to like she she's kind of a newbie, and then there's like the asshole. Is he like second in command or third in command? I don't know if like they establish that later on, but he's like. I think the 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 one you're talking about is is Laylee Ediberry. Like she's kind of like the Noah Bright of of Gundam F91. Like she's basically you know they they kind of refer to her as like the acting captain. So yeah. like there's not you know basically like in, in a similar fashion to the original Gundam. You know when the crossbone vanguard come to the side and start attacking you know a lot of these you know guys these federation guys that are inexperienced and and have never really been in a wartime situation they all end up you know getting killed so this lady is now in charge of the the you know federation ship that seabook and his friends basically become part of he he is a very gung-ho guy Uh, like one of my favorite lines is like you know it's like you know, all these civilians must die. It is all, like, you know, the, the horror war. Damn them. 
He's 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 very very much of a war hawk. He's you know you know he's, he's he he wants to like take down the crossbones, and he he like even slaps the shit out of him <laughs> at one point. And it's like he's just he, he he's not a I don't I mean you don't see him as a bad guy, but he he's kind of a dick. <laughs> well, it just seems like they're they're in this kind of wartime situation, and some of the characters are very unapologetic in the way that they they how they compose themselves. Yeah, he's more of a soldier. He's like, people are going to die. This is how it's going to happen. We just got to get fucking through this. Yeah, I, I I know what character you're talking about, but he's not even in those books. I thought maybe he had a little listing where you know he had some funny name or something like that, but I can't I can't think of the character per se. But you know, basically like you know they, they they're all kind of. Tr- Treated as refugees and civilians on that ship, but Seabook ends up being forced into, you know, piloting the Gundam basically because the Gundam is on that ship, and it turns out Seabook's mother is the one who designed the biocomputer on the ship. So, I mean, I guess in addition to the idea that you know Seabook is probably more than likely a new type, you know, there's also the added element of well, hey, his mom designed the biocomputer, so not only him, but his little sister Reese. Yeah, she's like, one there's of a scene now, where, yeah. yeah, she she basically is like, oh, well, it's like Cat's Cradle, and you know the way we used to you know play games and all this other stuff, and that's how the biocomputer is designed, and then all the you know then then eventually you know these. You know, like, like I guess what we were describing before, they, they may be corrupted officials or they may be, you know, uh, people who are placed into positions of power that really don't have the wherewithal or the experience to handle it. But they start seeing these characters as assets and they actually begin, you know, using them or, or you know, kind of enabling them with a little more authority and, and, and power in the sense of the Gundam to actually you know, fix some things that are going on. Seabook's mom is, like, another character that just, like, shows up towards the end and then is suddenly a, like, very important character, and you're like, wait, what? Like, huh? Wait, huh? Like, you gotta, like, kind of get out, like, up-to-date quickly, like... Yeah, because the first time you see her is, like, an hour into it, and it's just, like, a a image on the screen, and she's just like, I worked on the gun, and he's like, that's my mom! (laughs) Yeah, and then she just kind of shows up, and she's like, "I'm sorry, <laughs> I need you. To, I need to do all this stuff. <laughs> Let's do it. Come on, we've only got like an hour left. Let's go." <laughs> well, well, I mean, I, yeah. I think that's like one of the things that you guys are talking about. Well, like, you know, especially the people who've seen the whole movie. It, you know, it's kind of interesting. This is a two-hour movie, and we don't even get the main Gundam, like the actual like. Okay, yes, the the pilots are the actual characters. They're the meat of this this you know show or series, whatever you may have. But you know, everybody wants to see the big robot. You don't even get the F ninety one until well over an hour into the movie. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I just thought it was interesting. I was like, damn, they did, like kind of did the RoboCop build, you know? <laughs> well, I guess it's it, kind of like what Mike is saying is <sighs> if this is if this is compressed into uh, feature length film. You know, if, if this was going to be a 50-episode series, a lot of the times in the, the Japanese Gundam series, you don't actually get to see the title Gundam until, like, episode 25 or 26. So I'd say, like, the hour mark is probably tantamount to episode 25 of, yeah, the, yeah. You know, of, of a TV series if you're if you're looking at it in that yeah, sort of like, manner. It's like Zeta Gundam doesn't even show up until, like, well past the halfway point, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I like. I always liked that. Like Camille's. Like it's not even Camille piloting it when it first appears. Like what do you call it? Zeta Gundam at least. So 
I, I don't know. It seems like more realistic to me than like it, it seems in nowadays. Like you know, it's it's absolutely a must that like the the protagonist has to have their new Gundam and make some kind of dramatic entrance or something with it. But like I, I don't know. Back in the Tamino days, it seemed like you know, well here it is. Like in next episode, you can use it. You know, it's kind of all low key. Yeah, and I mean there was nothing wrong with that. I I, I didn't have a problem with it. It was actually a nice character build because. Like, you know, for him and the Gundam, because, I mean, at the hour mark, they are not doing well. <laughs> they, they've been getting their asses kicked, you know, for an hour of a two-hour movie. So when you see, like, you know, the F-91 actually do appear, I mean, like I said, it, it's, it's not a complaint. It's actually like, oh, okay, so now we're actually going to, like, have a chance for the good guys to actually, well, our good guys to actually, you know, have a chance, a fighting chance. Yeah, it seems like even though there's a lot of different warring ideologies, it's not so much that you're rooting for one ideology or the other, you're kind of rooting for the characters because, you know, Cecily is on, you know, the, the side of the aristocracy for a point in time. And, you know, Seabook is, is kind of with all these idiots who are in charge, you know, basically. And, and, you know, you know, both those, as he calls them, you know, I'm not going to get involved with a bunch of idiot adults, you know, like screwing shit up and invariably, you know, he has to, but it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you, uh, to me at least, I was kind of rooting for, you know, Seabook and, and Cecily and, and them to reunite and that kind of stuff as opposed to, you know, having much investment in whether Cosmo Babylonia takes off yeah. or whether the Federation, you know, retains its its stranglehold of of incompetence on, you know, the colonies yeah, or whatever. Yeah, the Federation, you know? they're not painted in a good light in this movie. <laughs> Well, it seems like they're never really painted in a good light. Like, aside from, like, the original Gundam, it's always like, you know, uh, the Federation has gotten all corrupt and stuff. But Now, I was going to say, like, Seabook and Cecily kind of reminded me of, well, I guess I guess it would be, like, a, just because I saw them in this order, but and it should be, like, these characters remind me of Seabook and Cecily if I saw that movie first, but they kind of remind me of the setup with, Benajer and uh, Audrey, like in Gundam Unicorn, sort of like, okay. like you know, she's like under an assumed name, and that's how like Benajer met her, and then it turns out she's like you know a princess or an heiress, and like Benajer like is kind of like, well, you're just you know Audrey to me, and that's like cause it's, it seems like Seabook was kind of like, well, I've only known you as Cecily, so yeah, you know, yeah, so. yeah. It should be it should be mentioned that like during this first half, like. Seabook doesn't see this, like, whole thing where she gets taken away by her family, so he has no idea until they, like, reunite. <laughs> I know that voice. Seabook, is that you? Seabook! Seabook! It's Cecily. Cecily! I can hear you over the contact link. Is that really you in there, Seabook? It's Cecily. You're piloting a crossbow suit. How could you? Cecily! It sort of just happened. It just worked out this way. What should I do? I just don't understand. I thought when you cut your hair that meant that you were going back with the Ronas. Oh, no. I was confused and you guys weren't around. So I really didn't think I had a choice. Really? That's what happened? Ironically, also the same dude voices Seabook and Banager. What do you call uh, I forgot his name, a Steve something. 
I don't know, but he voiced he voiced Seabook, uh, Banager, and uh, Shiro Amada from O Eight Team too. Hmm. Good actor. Yeah. And we were talking about like different aspects we see in this film. Like when I was watching this, I was like, "This is like Double Zeta if they did it right with all, all the goofy <laughs> like bullshit." Because like Seabook reminds me of like Judah Ashta if he wasn't such like a goofy Gus or something because he's like. You know, if you've seen Double Zeta or you've heard the show where we talk about Double Zeta, you know what I'm talking about. But like, no, he watched <laughs> our bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> just, Justin has a long hatred for the first like 20 or 30 episodes of Zeta. <laughs> I think like, everyone does. Yeah, it seems like yeah. Double Zeta. But it's like you know you got this large cast of like you know kids from like teenagers down to like little kids who are like on the ship who like. You know, can't manage the kids, let alone like fight the enemy or accomplish any of their missions. And this kid is like, you know, gave him this very advanced Gundam. And it's like, I kind of see Sicily as like, kind of like his sister in Double Zeta, because it's like, you know, uh, Judah's sister is taken by the enemy, and she's like, there's, you know, this big long arc where he's supposed to be looking for her. Meanwhile, she's like having all these like dinner parties and wearing nice dresses and like kind of living it up. With you know Neo Zeon or whatever, and you know, I kind of see that as kind of similar to like Sicily. Like if they had eliminated some of that goofiness, maybe they could have did like more serious aspects like this. Like you know, what what would be like the the real consequences of if you took a character and they went over to the enemy, regardless of like you know where they wanted to, or they were forced to, and like they accept it. And they do it. They go with that for a while, or you know, they they go against their their friends or you know their fo- former government or their military or whatever. Like I, I just couldn't get that out of my head. Like when I was watching this, I was like, this is like double Zeta done right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, sometimes compression, like even though there was a couple of hiccups, even I noticed some in the early you know scenes, even though I didn't see some of the later scenes you guys saw. Like sometimes compression isn't a bad thing. Like like you guys, like I said, like you know the hour introduction of the Gundam itself, it didn't piss me off because I was like, oh, okay, here's the badass. You know, here, here's like what I want to see. And in this two-hour movie, I was like, you know, the compression kind of worked because I was like, this has been really shitty so far as far as the good guys, you know, our good guys again, the guys we are rooting for, and they finally have a fighting chance. So, you know, I, I, I can, you know, see what you're saying. You know, it's like maybe, you know, the compression wasn't really that bad. I mean, it would have been nice to have a longer series, but what they did made the story move along a lot quicker in a, a lot of aspects, even if there were, like you know, like you guys said, a few hiccups here and there. So I was just going to ask, what do you guys think about Iron Mask in terms of things like Char, like the other masked characters of Gundam, and then also I, I'm, I'm sure this might be inevitable, especially because I think the score, especially, I think, has this weird bizarro inverted John Williams thing going on. Yeah, like, I was gonna like, say ripping like, off stuff, like because because like you know I, I remember first watching this and going, hey, that sounds like you know a uh, 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 melody from Empire Strikes Back, and they kind of have like this weird inverted imperial march or like the echo bass like dun 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 yeah there was a ton of stuff like that you know where where you know you could just point all that out but I was I was curious if anybody else noticed it or if you know yeah well I'll say this real quick because I know Mike again and Justin will have much more 
interesting things to say about like like characters who have been masked. But like like Shar always kind of came off kind of fruity to me. Not not gay, nothing like that. There's no like there's no slamming of any homosexual individuals. He just came off very effeminate and not very threatening, even though he was a great pilot. It, just, it was just kind of hard to take him seriously. And same with Trey's Kushranada, you know, it was just like, he had this very docile thing. And this motherfucker, when he came on the screen, he, like, scared me a little bit, because he was just like, you know, like, you know, hello. Like, <laughs> I was like, I, I, def- I definitely got, like, a Darth Vader vibe from him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's masked, he he kills people, and you can't even see how he kills them on screen. Like, I don't know if he, he did a Vader force choke on Theo or what, but you talk about those scenes where things are not entirely spelt out, like one of the scenes I would always rewatch. And what's funny is even in the commentary, they're like, yeah, we don't know how he died either. Like, they're like, you, you, they're talking to one of the Japanese creators too, but, but he is not the director. So they're all, oh, you got to send Tamino like an email, man, and ask him like, how did, how did Theo exactly die? Cause it's like the, the dude's rage just, it's like he, he's so composed, but like, it's like, oh, in that nanosecond where somebody like put on a, you know, astromorpher or something and changed to a Power Ranger, like, you know, Iron Mask just unleashed all his rage on Theo because he was pissed off that, that his, his wife left with him to the colony, you know, and somehow the next scene he just crumples over and dies and you're just kind of like. Well, Mike, Mike explained yeah. it earlier. It wasn't his rage. It was his psycho power. Yeah, yeah must have been. He, he was just—it's like the minute he lets, you know, he, he doesn't compose himself. His psychopower goes crazy, and he just totally slayed Theo. So I, I thought he was pretty interesting. Like I, I wish they could have spent more time on his backstory, or actually, like Cicely's whole family. Like I wish we could have gotten like more backstory with that because it seemed like there was like interesting pieces missing. Like he never did explain exactly why he had his mask. You know he. He said it was, you know, it had to do with his wife or something. And then at the very end, he's like, or Sicily's like, you know, it's because you're a cyber new type. And that comes out of nowhere, just like, what? You know, he's a cyber new type the whole time. I, I thought it was really interesting. And I, I, I like his, I like his iron mask. You know, most of the, most of the char tropes, they have just like some kind of little like dinky mask or like a little helmet or something. But I, I like the fact that he has like an actual iron Mask. It kind of gives him that feel of, you know, the man in the Iron Mask from the old. Uh, yeah, the well, story. in in the dub, they they definitely u- utilize the the whole man in the Iron Mask explanation or look because they they have a line where they reference, you know, he wears that mask because of his shame. You know, it's like he he basically he's part of this aristocratic family through marriage. Like he's not. He's not aristocratic by blood. He just married into it. So he married into it, and the person he married into left him. So basically he's like, oh, well, this mask is to to hide, like, you know, my shame, basically. Like, you know, otherwise he'd be running around with a sourpuss on his face the whole time. <laughs> I, I was figuring, like, as far as the technical aspect of it goes, like what she said about him being a cyber new type, I was figuring maybe... They like he they tweaked him to be like so sensitive that he needs some kind of like dulling 
thing around his head or something, mm-hmm. like to you know, sort of a magneto style thing where he yeah, yeah. Well, like, maybe maybe that's it. Maybe to contain himself. Like maybe maybe when he gets enraged, that's why Theo Fairchild just like falls over because he's like, I'm angry, and then the guy <laughs> yeah, like falls over and dies. <laughs> you know, yeah. So. Well, I, I think uh, what Justin just said actually kind of emphasizes what I was trying to say. Like like Char and you know like Trey's, their helmets are so almost gaudy at a point. It's like they have the mask and then they have the helmet, then they have this this shit on top of the mask and these like you know you know emblazing like pontrons you know like all these like you know useless you know effects to like make them seem like these great military commanders, but this iron mask is very it, it's well designed. It's not simplistic, but at the same time. It gives a very effective look. He doesn't look. I mean, like I said, his his image like you know scares me because he looks like a guy who's pissed off. Like Char and you know Trace, they 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 always have these big eyes on their mask, and they always look like you know oh we're fighting oh oh you know it's like I gotta fight oh you know like Speed Racer, but the Iron Mask it gives much more of a conveyance of. A sinister intent. I think that's why he seems more imposing to me. I think I think you mean uh, Zach Zach Marquis, yeah. Oh yeah, I said Trey. Trey's is the other fucker. I forgot. Hey, it's been it's been almost fifteen years since I've seen like uh, (laughs) Gotham Wing. Well, I'd say I'd say Trey's is much more uh, politician. You know, just like the older grandfather guy. But yeah, they they definitely have to attack. I'll use his other name, Zach Marquis. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, they they definitely have their attack dogs like Zex or like you know Iron Mask in this case, and he definitely goes goes all out. You know, especially in the final battle where you know he's got his Rafflesia, you know, uh, mobile armor that that fights the F ninety one. You know, flying I, tomato or whatever. Yeah, it basically. Was. Yeah, yeah. So or so pepper. you know, it's good. It's connected to his 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 head, basically. Yeah. I, I think there's just a part of me in the back of my head that just like saying the uh, name Tres Cusranada. I don't know. <laughs> I, I like saying Rafflesia. 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 Some weird well, ass mobile suit names. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, I will now shut up now because we're gonna go to the probably like near the end of it now since we talked about this and I have not seen the end. So spoilers ahoy, and you guys. Have fun, and I'll I'll chime in when you guys get done. Uh, I was just gonna say, like, I, like I guess, like I like I said with Cecily, I, I, like it just seemed like she suffered the most for the length of the movie because at the end she's kind of like, you know, I was wrong. Like, let me switch sides again, and then like they're all like, you know, we can't trust her, you know. Like ten minutes ago, she was like just on their side, and then uh, I, I like, like I like how the acting captain is just kind of like, yeah, I imagine your life is pretty pretty complicated so they're like that's all the explanation you're going to get of why certain people you know allow her to come on board and become part of the the crew after that point but most of those people were her friends like not just seabook yeah. they kind of describe it as a civilian run vessel so there's even those lines where even some of seabook's other buddies come up and they're like oh don't sweat these other fucking retards like we're you you can stay on board if you need yeah. to yeah. What did you guys think of like the 
Well, like, they started, like, talking about, like, how they were going to, like, test this big thing called bug, like, on Earth and stuff. And I was like, oh, what is this, some kind of, like, anti-personnel weapon and stuff? And it just turns out to be, like, these mini, like, flying saucer buzz saws that go around and kill people. I, I thought that was kind of funny, but... I mean, it, it was more... It was more of, like, that, vi- like, kind of disturbing violence when it was, they were, like, going around killing people. But I was just like, oh, I thought it was going to be something, like, I don't know, a little more, like, I guess insidious, maybe, or some kind of, like, viral thing or something. I guess to answer Mike's question about the weapons of mass destruction that Iron Mask deploys on the colony, I guess going back to my take on it that, Seabook and Cecily are kind of like Kira and Lacus. Like, I think had this series continued, there would have been more of the Seabook does not want to kill people type thing and, and maybe handled in probably a more realistic and, and better arc than, than maybe Kira, you know, where he's like, I'm going to save you guys and I'm not going to kill anyone, you know, whatever, you know, like kind of thing or whatever. But it's like, you know, Seabook, I think, does, you know, go into action and he takes out a lot of guys with his new type ability, but he is genuinely horrified by it. And so I think the just in terms of his character arc, not so much in terms of, you know, logical progression of the story, but in terms of the logical progression of his character arc, it allows Seabook and Cecily to mindlessly slaughter a bunch of automatons and look cool while they do it without actually murdering or quote unquote murdering anybody, you know, on camera. So in that sense, it's like the only person they actually take out is Iron Mask. But by that point, that the the kind of Kira Yamato machine that they would have become would have found that acceptable, I think, you know, as opposed to anybody else where, you know, you know, whether it's, it's Cecily's, you know, half brother or Zabine, you know, like those guys, it's like, Oh, well, those are all, all right dudes, even though they're trying to set up this aristocracy, you know, <laughs> I, I thought it was cool. when Zabine, like, like he was like, fuck this bullshit. And he shot that guy's helmet. Yeah. Like, yeah. Where he's like, just like, what's going on here? And then he's like, I'm not allowed to tell you what's going on. And he's like, well, I'm not allowed to just let you sit here and fuck shit up. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But it doesn't concern me. It what? Is this how Iron Mask operates? As I said, it doesn't concern me. I can't make such a decision of my own accord. I see. But those who work directly under Iron Mask are not the only ones who can act as they see fit. What did you say about Zabine and someone else? Uh... Oh, oh, Cecily's half-brother. The, oh, yeah, that's it, what I wanted to add. What happened to him? Like, I can't remember if he ever showed up again or if he died, like, off-camera or something. Or I don't think... I think he was still around. I just think he was he was part of that... I don't know. I think he's just part of that crew. Like, I think he... Because they, they, I think they all go home and declare victory, but I, I don't know if he was there with them when they kind of determined that you know, Cecily's a traitor or whatever, but I, I you know, I, I kind of think of it as like, he's not really her blood relation either per se, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, so I, I just like how Derek said crew. I just imagine he went home and they had a dance off. <laughs> <laughs> that's, how all the, that's how all the disputes are solved. And 
in Gundam. Yeah, in Gundam. Everyone just goes home and has a dance-off. Instead of dropping this colony, we will all have Gundam dance-off. What about you, Justin? Do you have any Do you have any final thoughts on, on Gundam F91? Anything to wrap it up? I really enjoyed it. Like, I, I wish they could have, instead of a two-hour movie, like, I wish it could have been, like, a 13-part, like, OVA series or something, just because, you know, you watch it, and there's all these missing, it's like scene missing. It's like, I, I want to know more about, like, the past history of Iron Mask, and, you know, I want to know, like, more about, you know, Chick who, like, switches sides randomly and dies and all this other stuff. I guess it, I guess if you, like, would have put all that in the movie, the movie would end up being, like, three or four hours long or something. But, like, you know, I enjoyed it. I thought the animation was really well done. You know, Tony talked about this earlier. It's, like, when I was watching it, especially during that first 20-minute sequence, like, I, I felt like the mobile suits had weight to them, you know. Like a lot of times, most of these newer series, it's like you see a Gundam, and it, it's just kind of there, or it's just like it's floating there, or it's it's even if it's like in motion, like walking or something, it's like I'm like, okay, that's the Gundam. But like in this, it's you know, like Tony said, it's like you you see like all the mechanical moving parts, like you feel like it could be. A real thing like it has weight. Like we we talked we talked about this before it's when we talked about you know eighth MS team. Like that feels like a real series. It's like everything in that, even though it's giant mechs, like it's so really well animated and detailed and realistically portrayed. Like you feel like it could be a real thing at some point in time. Like that's how I felt about most of the stuff in this. Like there was some stuff towards the end, you know, like Iron Mask little thing with Bob he was in like okay like that's a little you know that's the, definitely an anime trope the giant mecha machine with the tentacle things like, okay, I, I believe like, Mike called it the super tomato <laughs> or super the Rafflesia. I, I should say the super bell pepper or something I don't know what shape <laughs> like. yeah but it, that's the full Japanese name super bell pepper Rafflesia. um <laughs> I, I did want to ask, like, uh, uh, Derek, I guess, like, are, are there any, like, manga, like, prequels well, or sequels or anything that continue it's, the story? It's, it's interesting that, that you bring this up. I may be mixing my metaphors with fans that will never, ever intermingle, but I would like to say that since the show ends kind of on a, you know, to-be-continued note almost, you know, like that little pan of them when they're floating through space at the end and and it kind of indicates there's going to be more i mean it's basically the show is really like the paul mcgann of the gundam universe (laughs) because what what ends up happening is and and also to sort of indicate comparisons to future gundam characters the show did not have any more sequels, which they, they kind of intended to, I think. And so what ended up happening was, I think the, the sequelization of it got turned into a manga called Mobile Suit Crossbone Gundam. And the Crossbone Gundam, of course, is, is a very piratey looking Gundam mobile suit that reminds me an awful lot of Gundam, Gundam Age. Oh, I was gonna say Gundam Age. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that's where the Dark Hound is like a homage from is the cross. Yeah. Gun. Yeah. So, okay. so it, it's it's very much like that. And and my hope is that you know, although we're concluding this podcast on F ninety one, you know, if you are so inclined to take this journey with me, but you don't have to take my hand, 
but that you would, you would come <laughs> along with me on, on this adventure and, and we could all read the Mobile Suit Crossbone Gundam manga. And that takes place in like UC-128. But by this point, like, C-Book is kind of going by a pseudonym, so it's like one of those things where you have to sort of be in the know to understand that it's, uh, you know, kind of like, like when, when Char shows up, but he's like, yo, my name's Quattro Bagina, you know, and you got to be like, oh, well, that's that's Char. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, so it's like C-Book kind of shows up the same way in the in the Crossbone Gundam. But, yeah, I, I would hope in, in future Mobile Suit Mondays we could actually all, you know, you know, those of us that participate, we could all read that manga and, and chat about that because that is, you know, technically it's written by Tamino. So it's 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 more official than any other, you know, kind of manga and side stories. But also to answer your question, there's also some like weird prequel stuff, too. Like there's a there's a Gundam F90 side story where it's like the Gundam before F91 and, you know, things like that. So so we could definitely check out uh, a lot of those manga and side stories if we continue doing this in the future is what my my hope would be yeah that sounds cool to me cool all right well i i think this kind of wraps up our introductory episode of mobile suit mondays if you enjoy listening to mobile suit mondays let us know and you can email us at fanelspodcast at gmail.com but until then this is going to be derek derek wc signing off I am a Gundam. Mike, you can't defeat my psycho power. This is Kriplock. This is Tony Chainclaw. And seriously, when we do fucking D Gundam in death, I'm going to fucking kill everyone on it. <laughs> With your erupting, burning finger? I, well, hey, I even know who like, the fucking Mandalay Gundam is, and the Skull Gundam, and the Jets. I'm going to shut up now. I'm just so Oh, by the way, my last thought of the evening, this uh, movie was so good, I am actually going to finish it because it actually did enthrall me. I just didn't have enough time. So, again, YouTube, you know, nobody should watch it. It's free. Cool. All right, guys. Well, thanks for listening and tune in next time. Peace. Peace. about burning Gundam. There will you know, be no Master Asia talk on this show. You know, Tony, Tony, they have a cream for that. <laughs> it's, it's oddly enough called Formula F91. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. I'm all shit. Uh, even I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs>